0: Everyone's doing well, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Listeners who have been around Missouri for a while are familiar with our first guest, Senator Jim Talent. Senator Talent is best known at the Institute for being my husband, but he's best known in Missouri because of his service for his many, many years in both the U.S. House and Senate. He's with us today because of his experience over the last decade with the issue of pandemic resilience. After he left the Senate, Senator Talent co-chaired two congressional commissions on the subject of biosecurity with former Senator Bob Graham of Florida. Subsequently, he and Senator Graham co-founded a nonprofit organization which conducted the first and only end-to-end study of our public health system's ability to respond to a pandemic, whether man-made or natural. Their report was released in October 2011 and is still regarded as the gold standard analysis by leaders of public health today. Senator Talon has testified before Congress several times regarding pandemic resilience and continues to write and lecture on the subject. Two years ago, he participated in a tabletop exercise at the Center for Health Security at John Hopkins, where he played the role of the American Secretary of Defense in a scenario involving a global pandemic. Senator Talent will introduce our other guests and now I'll turn it over to Jim.
1: Well, thank you, Brenda. Um, my job today is to introduce our special guest, uh, Colonel Randy Larson, who is an old and dear friend. And since we want to get to the discussion and especially to the questions as quickly as possible, I am going to be briefer than I wanted to be. But I do want to say about talking about Colonel Larson and his accomplishments, but I do want to say right up front uh, that if there were a, if there were a, a Mount Rushmore of people who had contributed to uh, pandemic response and biosecurity in this country, uh, Randy Larson would be on it. And I think he'd probably be the only non-physician or health official who was on it. Uh, We're not as prepared as we ought to be for this virus, but we're better prepared than we would have been uh, because of Colonel Larson's contribution. So, Briefly, uh, Colonel Larson had a whole other career before he came to the issue of biosecurity. He served 32 years in the United States Air Force, began as a 19-year-old Cobra pilot in the 101st Airborne. He flew 100 combat missions in Vietnam. He finished that career as the um, chairman of the Department of Military Strategy and Operations at the National War College. Uh, which, by the way, is the institution that trains all of our future uh, generals and flag officers. Um, In that capacity, he created the first graduate course in homeland security and hired the first professor in biosecurity and pandemic preparedness, who I believe, Randy, was uh, Bob Cadlick, wasn't it? And and Bob is now um, assistant secretary. Yeah, he's assistant secretary for preparedness uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Randy retired just about around 9-11, and then he entered the public square talking about biosecurity, um, in particular after the anthrax attacks. I'm not going to go through everything he's done. He's written books. He was, uh, 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 he's conducted two tabletop exercises on pandemic scenarios. Uh, he was at one time practically the co-host of the Larry King Show for a, a week or two after the anthrax attacks. Uh, He's published in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Washington Post, the USA Today. Uh, He's just been very active on this issue for a long time. And I intersected with with Randy when uh, Senator Graham and I were doing our two congressional commissions uh, on, among other things, the issue of biosecurity and then the uh, the nonprofit organization that Brenda mentioned, which she was introducing me. And we did produce a report, which is, one of the better things I've done, but I have to say it was Randy, it was Colonel Larson and Lynn Kidder, our president, who organized that effort, who put the experts together and who produced that report. So, uh, and By the way, I'll just mention Colonel uh, R- Larson is now uh, in the middle of a third career. He's a documentary filmmaker, and I'd urge everybody uh, to see his latest production, Black Hawk Down, The Untold Story. Uh, you'll find it very, very interesting and engaging. So welcome, uh, Randy, to our uh, our show here.
2: All right. Uh, glad to be here. Let's get to pandemics.
1: Okay. Uh, so the, the one question I wanted to ask you to start this off, and then we'll discuss that a couple of minutes and then throw it open uh, for questions is uh, what, what were our biggest vulnerabilities going into this pandemic? We studied it. 10 years ago, uh, what were the areas that you were most concerned about when you looked at the chain of pandemic resilience, if you will? Well, there were about uh, six things that we
2: identified way back at the WMD commission. And then we really did a 18 month in-depth examination. And as you mentioned, it was the first kind of stand to stir in the entire thing from first detection to completing and getting through a pandemic But the three that we really identified back there, 2011, are the most important, is America must have capability for rapid diagnostics. We must have capability to rapidly produce medical countermeasures. And when I use that term, that's vaccines that you get to prevent a disease and therapeutics, what you take once you are infected. And surge capacities in our healthcare facilities. And we can see that those
1: are three of the biggest topics we're hearing discussed today. That's right. If you don't have the countermeasures, uh, Colonel Larson used to say, uh, it's it's uh, a, a medical establishment without countermeasures is like an army without bullets. You basically are, are playing defense and dodgeball with the disease until you can get pharmaceuticals, either vaccines to prevent the disease or pharmaceuticals to lower the severity. And, of course, we can see that happening uh, today, um, Colonel, let me just ask you up front, and then and then we are going to go to the questions. But I, I want to make certain we get this in. What can people be doing today? I'm not talking about the government here. What, what can individuals and their families be doing uh, to protect themselves against the disease and to help in the overall effort to fight it?
2: Well, I've got my little card. I just got in the mail yesterday. Uh, from the president and you see the vice president waving at all the the press conferences, that little list of things that you can do. uh, And it's really about protecting yourself and your family. And I know it's very difficult. I'm a retiree. It's easier on me, but I know so many people, it's difficult when we say stay at home and don't go to large gatherings, because that's the quickest way we can break the back of this pandemic is by stop making ourselves vulnerable now one of the things that i'm really looking forward to i mean we got all of american industry involved in this now and it's 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 great i wish it would have started a little bit earlier but the fact is there's i know we're trying to get all the tests out there right now senator because we don't have a good situational awareness i know you spent many years on armed forces committees in the house and senate and without situational awareness on a battlefield, you don't know what's going on. And America is a battlefield right now, and the enemy's the COVID-19 virus. And so we have to get better situational awareness. They're working on all the tests now. But there's another test that you haven't heard much about that I think will really is going to be a game changer in this, and that's what's called a serology test. So right now the main test you see, they stick a swab up your nose, and they look to see if you have the virus. Now, sometimes it's taken seven days. Now they're getting a new test down that it could be less than an hour. But the most important test, in my opinion, that we're going to have is a serology test where they just get a drop of blood from you. Like you do uh, people with diabetes, it's got to test their blood sugar, a little drop of blood. And what the test will look for is antibodies. Because when a virus comes into your body, your body produces antibodies to try to fight it. Sometimes it's effective which is why a lot of young people and and people who are not at great health risk will fight off the virus or be a very mild case. But if you could, my wife's got me locked down in the house now. I can't leave and it's the right thing to do because I'm in that higher risk group. But if you could give me a blood test right now and it showed that I had sufficient antibodies, that means I'm immune. That's Mother Nature's vaccine. That means I could go be a volunteer at a hospital right now to screen people in because I don't have to worry about getting the disease. I could go stock shelves in a grocery store. There's so many volunteer things we could be doing once we have that situational awareness. So to me, that could be a game changer. There's a lot of companies working on it out there, and I just hope we get it out there in use as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, the diagnostics, uh, if you empower yourself with better and better diagnostics, and particularly if you're prepared going into a pandemic, then it gives you a lot of options that otherwise you don't have because you know, or you, you, you can learn more in real time, uh, who has the disease, who has had the disease and who is a potential target for the disease. And if you know that you can be much more selective with restrictions, for example, and you're right. If you've had the disease, so now you're immune uh, you can go to work, uh, you can go out and help other people, uh, you can relieve the isolation of, of, the, of the higher risk people who have to shelter in place. I mean, uh, in our family, for example, Randy, uh, my mother-in-law lives with us and she's well into her 80s now. So we have to be careful about how often even our adult children can see her, right? Well, if we knew that they had had the disease and were therefore immune, there wouldn't be any problem. So again, the better prepared like you are. That's
2: going to be a big
1: game changer. You bet. Yeah, when we get that. Okay, I will restrain uh, myself and uh, and Colonel Larson now, and uh, we can take questions.
0: Right. If anyone has a question, just play press star, and um, we we can uh, put you on the line with them. I had a question uh, for you all as as we're um, waiting for people to to get online here. Is just. We're hearing about the lack of tests. Um, you know, can can you comment on that? Do, do you have any awareness of whether we're going to be um, really ramping up these tests and and the availability of those tests?
2: Well, yeah, you know, we we've been hearing a lot about it uh, that they're going to be there. They're going to be there. I think they're finally going to see a big surge in that capability, and and not the type we have to wait four or five days to get the results, uh, but that it can be less than an hour, that's going
1: to be helpful. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, what you try and aim for is to get, if possible, uh, a home test. So kind of like, uh, you know, we have home pregnancy tests. Well, that would be ideal, but if you can't get that, then what you aim for is Point of care diagnostics. So you go to the doctor's office, or of course you could set up testing centers, and we're talking now about drive through testing, and they are setting that up in some places where you just go to your local healthcare provider or your Walgreens or wherever and you get tested, and you need to find out too within a reasonable period of time whether you have the virus, um, even if you're asymptomatic. And yeah, in principle, we can do that. What we need is a public private partnership, which the government has now, I think, pretty fully engaged. So the answer to that question is, yeah, I think we're going to get it. And when we do, then a lot of the um, the controversy surrounding models of disease infection rates and the rest of it is is going to be lessened because we're going to know better uh, how many people have gotten the disease, and we, then we can draw inferences uh, about how the disease is going to operate. And, Randy, maybe you could discuss a little bit one of the principles of dealing with a pandemic that i found very informative when you and others first explained it to me 10 years ago it's the whole idea of gumshoe epidemiology right so talk about that a little bit I and mean, how, how do the public health experts learn about new viruses that we haven't encountered before
2: well if we you know in some places in New York City, gumshoe epidemiology is very difficult right now because it is so widespread. You look a map of the United States, and it's extraordinary the number of cases in certain areas, up in Washington State along the coast and Los Angeles, and particularly in New York City. But in other places, in the majority of the country, if we get an early detection of someone who is infected, then epidemiologists from our public health offices, our state and county public health offices, who are the frontline heroes today, they can go see who, where they've been, who, who they have talked to, to see if they can track it down. But you can only do that when it isn't completely out of control. I, I think it would be a waste of time in New York City to do the gum-chew epidemiology we talk about, as opposed to the epidemiologist that just sits in their desk at their desk all day in an office. It's getting out there. It was a big role in eradicating smallpox. Uh, it's, it's being in the field and finding where it is, and then getting those people taken care of. But uh, in certain areas,
1: it, that's just not going to work today. It's it's too far out of control. Yeah, and you can't um, you can't like study a virus under a microscope and learn everything about it that you need to know. So this it's it's really important to understand that you know they isolate the virus they know they're dealing with something new, and they can learn some things obviously by studying it, particularly its similarity to other viruses. But they can't draw reliable inferences from that about how contagious it is, about how virulent it is. In other words, how severe uh, the, the reaction to it might be. How many people will have will be symptomatic. They have to observe how the virus is actually operating in the population, and that's extremely difficult. In fact, it's difficult even to know that you have a new virus out there. I mean I, I think the Chinese hid information for a long time, but even if they I hope, hadn't been yeah. even if they hadn't been, I, it takes a while to to, to to understand you have a new um, microbe out there. Now,
2: absolutely, and regarding your gumshoe epidemiology, just like their law enforcement detective, it's out there looking at it. I think we got some bad information early on from China. We were told there was no human-to-human transmission. It only came from the animals in that market. Uh, No, had we known that earlier, that would have helped. And like you say, we have to have the data that those epidemiologists are collecting because we don't know how deadly it is if we don't have that kind of information now there was a study out of imperial college a few weeks ago that really got everybody's attention because they showed some really big numbers for potential deaths we've now learned that eh, they were guessing at some of the numbers that went into the models now even back in my military days at national war college we always used to say that all models are wrong but some are useful and so you can look at some of these projections about what they're talking about but they have to be based on reliable data and we didn't have that early on when we heard some of these numbers about well maybe 2.2 million people could die in the united states uh that's pretty questionable data right now and i think uh, some people should have noticed that that study was not peer reviewed which is one of the basic elements of science is peer review before it's published
3: yeah, right, maybe here. Get... We do have a lot of questions on the line. Um, our first one uh, is from Tom in Columbia. So, Tom in Columbia, go ahead and uh, ask your question.
2: Yeah, I'm just curious, based on the information that you all have, how long do you think this will last? And then is it
0: safe to go into a post office after hours and get your mail? Hmm. And
2: uh, nobody knows tom how long it's going to last i think with the sort of shutdown we're doing right now is our best chance for keeping it as short as possible where we can hear everybody hears about flattening that curve so we don't get a peak of really serious cases overwhelming our medical system which we have seen in northern italy and we're starting to see somewhat in new york city i, I think it's reasonable to believe or to hope that within I don't know, five to six weeks, we might see this start a curve down, particularly when you look at other countries that have taken some great things. Taiwan and Singapore learned incredibly important lessons from SARS, which almost destroyed their economy. They reacted very quickly in shutting things down, and we've already seen the curve heading down there. Now, as regards going to the post office, it depends what risk group you're in, you know. Uh, but, you know, every time something comes to our door, whether it's the mail or a UPS or a FedEx delivery or something, my wife wops, My wife, wipes sit down in, you know, a Clorox-type solution, and then it's got to sit there for a few hours before I'm allowed to touch it. So I think you can go out. You just have to have good sanitation procedures to protect yourself, and particularly those in higher-risk groups.
1: Yeah, we yeah. can – uh... We, we can hope that, the, that that we don't feel like and aren't in an epidemic phase for months and months and months. But the disease will be endemic. It will still be out there until we get a vaccine or effective countermeasures. And there, there is certainly some hope as to the latter that that could happen in a, in a relatively short time frame. And as you probably know, Tom, they're already trying uh, chloroquine to see if that will be effective. But it's going to be around until we get the medical countermeasures so we can, you know, kill it or prevent it from infecting people.
3: All right, our next question is from Steve. He's got a question about required temperature checks. Go ahead, Steve.
4: Yes, uh, we're an employer. We have five locations, uh, around uh, 500 employees total in, in about three states. And uh, my question is is around uh, required temp checks before the start of work each day. We're currently uh, encouraging self-monitoring in four of our five facilities. Uh, We just started this week uh, requiring temp checks in Springfield, Missouri, which is kind of the hottest spot uh, Mm -hmm. where we uh, have plants. And I guess my my question then is, is how how effective do you think the required temp checks are versus self-monitoring as it relates to uh, uh, containing the coronavirus at the door?
2: Well, I'm not a physician, but I will say that the temp checks are better than nothing. But one of the problems is with this particular virus is you can be contagious before you have any symptoms and that is what uh, makes this more of a challenge um, as opposed to other diseases like virus smallpox you had to have very serious symptoms and it was obvious you were sick before you were contagious that's not the case with this but that's not to say that people shouldn't be self-monitoring at home taking their temperature or even if you want to have that screening you notice in most of the hospitals now they're screening your temperature before you come in and one of the things I've heard Dr. Fauci talk about, who, by the way, I think is the greatest American hero right now in this pandemic, talks about adults don't have the temperature spike that you find in children or, you know, a, a young child gets sick and their temperature can pop up to 103, 103 a half really quickly. Adults, sometimes it's only 100 or 100.5 when they're coming down with this. So I think it's wise. If you want to do the easy screening of the temperature, you have seen that in a lot of the countries where they've been successful in flattening this curve, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea. So I think it's a good idea. If I were an employer, I'd be doing that. I'd also be working to educate my employees. Don't come to work when you're sick. And uh, I know so many people, we hear this stuff about, oh, work at home. Yeah, well, that's easy to say, except if you're a truck driver, you're stocking grocery stores, you're in a manufacturing plant, that's tougher. But we do have to educate
1: them in staying at home if they're sick. And as we get better and better diagnostics, this will become less and less necessary. So, for example, if you have employees who've had the disease or the virus and recovered or were asymptomatic, well, you don't need to check their temperature because they can't get the disease and they can't spread it. So I think they'll be able to refine these kind of standards and and make them less onerous as they develop their capabilities to deal with the, uh, the virus in other ways.
3: Great. Uh, just a reminder for those on the line, you can press star at any time to ask a question, or you can send in questions on email at info at Our next question is from Michael in St. Louis. Michael in St. Louis, go ahead with your question.
4: Yes, uh, Colonel Larson, your center published a a report last year that showed that the United States was probably better prepared than most other countries to handle uh, an event like this, but it wasn't close to a perfect score. What
2: would be your recommendations for the federal, state governments, and for private uh, health providers uh, to, once we get past this event, to improve that score to get us closer to being able to handle uh, a similar event in the future? Uh, Thank you, Michael. Excellent question. Yeah, the president showed that in his first press conference. He held up that chart from the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and that the United States was in the top level of countries being prepared. That's good, except (laughs) so it's good to be in the United States, but – There's so many things that uh, it wasn't a perfect score, as you said. Uh, And those three things that Senator Talent and I began talking about, we have to improve the capability for rapid diagnostics. A decade ago, Senator Talent and Senator Graham were banging the table, talking to members of Congress, talking to members of the administration. We have to have point-of-care diagnostics. You know, we have it for strep throat. You go see your doctor, and they get you a test in a couple minutes. We have it for pregnancy. We have it for influenza, where they can test you. We have to have that capability. Now, this was a novel virus. We didn't know it existed until late December. But we have to have that capability when there's a threat to our national security to rapidly make the diagnostic, get it out to the hospitals and clinics where they can get that rapid That's the most important thing that we could do. And I think that's the thing we could do the quickest. Then the other thing are the medical countermeasures uh we've been trying to work on that for two decades it's it's not an easy one i think the thing we're going to get the quickest will be the therapeutic vaccines take a long time and it's a frustrating thing to all of us we're hearing now that maybe 18 months two years and people say why so long well normally it takes 10 to 15 years to come up with a new vaccine we want it to be safe we have to do the testing and whatever now surge capacity There's a lot we can do there without breaking the bank on spending things. Uh, I did a study back in 2006. We discovered there are 40,000 nurses in the state of Texas no longer working in nursing. You know, they got burnout or they decided to stay home, take care of kids, or they wanted to get into real estate or whatever. If we had people like that in a reserve corps, that we could, like in the military reserve, maybe a couple weekends a year, they'd do some training or whatever. But in a crisis like this, just one phone call, we could have another 40,000 nurses available in the state of Texas. That would be an incredible thing. So that surge capability, rapid medical countermeasures and diagnostics, it's unfortunately the same thing we've been saying for decades. But but to answer
1: your question, Michael, that's the three things we would have to focus on in the future. Colonel, as a follow-up, it's not just a question of having extra beds available, isn't it? Because... You need more than just the space, right? Yeah, good question. We used to have
2: a lot of people come to the the center and say, "Hey, we got this idea how we could build this pop up hospital in the parking lot of a hospital, and we could have it up in forty eight hours and yada yada." Yeah, but where are the pop up doctors, med techs, nurses that do it? Because beds mean nothing, and without it's manned beds is the proper term, and and so that's a big challenge because so much of our healthcare is in the private sector. And if you're the CEO of a big medical practice, like uh, I, I use Baylor, Scott & White here in Central Texas, man, many hospitals, clinics, and whatever, but you can't afford to have a whole bunch of empty beds in your hospital or, or you'll go broke. So we have to figure out a better way for
3: that
1: surge capacity. And the issue of personnel... All
3: right, from Fabian in Kansas.
2: Fabian, go ahead with your question. Hey, wonderful information, gentlemen. I, I was going to uh, just ask about that uh, the experimental drug that treats malaria, and uh, you've already explained how much time it takes to develop something like that. With your most recent response about surge capacity, I wanted to ask this question. You know, we hear a lot of politicization and I'm just wondering how much better the states might be able to handle some of this stuff rather than the uh responsibility being placed on the federal government. I know both of you are speaking from a federal level of it, but is is there more the states can be doing, please? Well, there's kind of two questions in there. Now, first of all, this uh, malaria drug, I took it in Vietnam in nineteen sixty seven and uh, it does have some side effects or whatever, but doctors are using it in New York city along with, uh, I think an antibiotic and, you know, but there's also 50 other therapeutics that are in tests now. And some of those are already, already on the shelf, FDA approved. Uh, they're using the malarial drug for, uh, it's off shelf. It's used for lupus treatment and other things. And so it can be used for things. I mean, that would be great if that works, but there's 50 other ones they're looking at. And I think that will be the quickest medical countermeasure we get. Now, your question about state and local. Well, I got my start in this whole pandemic preparedness uh, back in 94, looking at homeland security. And most of homeland security takes place at the state and local government. I am big believers in that we have to be supporting state and local government. But now, Fabian, there's a big debate going on because you see many states that are really locked down right now say stay at home only non-essential you look at the state of mississippi the governor says well restaurants and bars are essential here so all those people can go to work uh now you look at the map there are not many cases in mississippi compared to los angeles or new york city that's not to say that mississippi won't eventually get a number of cases so we have a big question now and this is a much higher political level than I get to. So I'm going to ask Senator Talent to respond. But the question is, should there be national standards right now on about the whole stay at home business and only essential people go to work? Or should
1: that be at the state and local level? What do you think Senator Talent? Well, I I think it should definitely be at the state and local level because different states and localities are at different stages in dealing with the disease. Okay. as a matter of fact, where I foresee this going uh, is a kind of a rolling uh, set of public policies, depending on what is happening in particular cities or particular states. That way we can resolve this tension uh, between uh, trying to control the disease through these very restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions is what they call, you know, quarantines and restrictions, et cetera. And the need to begin getting the economy moving. I mean, the economy—I don't think has crashed now. I think it's kind of paused. It's suspended, and the government's trying to, um, you know, to keep it from getting hurt too badly with this with this stimulus bill and this other measures that they're passing. Well, one way of dealing with this is as we get better data about the disease, and we know how how much it really is spreading and how fast it's spreading, and particularly if we can get therapeutics, so we have a greater margin of error. And, and we have a greater ability to maybe shift around surge capability. Then we can um, we can restrict the, the 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 most you know the strongest lockdowns to the cities that are dealing with the biggest spikes, and we can sort of play whack a mole with the disease effectively until we get even better countermeasures over time. So I think this is a situation where our federal system actually you know really does help us. Now what what Randy knows, what Colonel Arson knows is that we have a, a a good communication structure within our public health um, system. So they do communicate extremely well. So every day uh, the CDC and and, and uh, the vice president's team of people is on the phone with all 50 states discussing development. So there's a lot of informal coordination going on on the federal level. I don't think you need some kind of federal decree covering everybody. I don't think it would be – it would strike the right balance between, um, you know, uh, public health and other kinds of considerations. Uh, obviously, if the disease had been worse than it is and it's bad enough, heaven knows, uh, then you might need some kind of federal um, one-size-fits-all restrictions. But I don't think we're there yet.
2: It, it question, is incredible. It,
1: it, okay, go ahead. Sorry, our next
3: question yeah. is... Uh... From email from Barry in St. Louis. If you're over the age of 65 with no underlying health conditions, are you still considered high risk? Okay, well, once again,
2: I'm not a physician, but I can tell you what people like Dr. Tony Fauci and Dr. Burks and many others are putting in, including uh, Bob Cadillac, who, who Talent I work with quite a bit, and he's running uh, the show at uh, HHS now for this response. And uh, At first, everyone said, you look at the curve on the data we had from China. You know, it was very low about people really getting sick and and, in danger of dying. And the graph was very low. But then when you started to get into the 50s, it started to get a little bit more vertical. By the time 65, that graph was like on a 45-degree angle as you got close to 80. It was a nearly vertical graph. So most of what we see now, we're seeing because there's so many more cases in Europe and we're getting data they are showing more younger people, okay? And at my age, I call younger people, you know, from 20 to 50. We're we we're showing more of those cases. Thankfully, we don't see many cases in young children, which sometimes flu can be toughest on them. So at age 55, I, I think you're in a lot better condition than I am at 71. Uh, and, and But one of the biggest things we have seen is even 40-year-olds that have those underlying things like, having diabetes and having heart problems. Even hypertension can really uh, increase the risk. But 55, very healthy, you're
1: in one of the safest groups. I think he said 65, which is actually, but, you know, if he did say 55, then I, then then everything it he said applies. Did he say 65? The CDC, if you look at the CDC webpage, yeah they have the cutoff really for what they define as in an advanced or a higher risk demographic because of age at age 65. And I look very carefully because I'm 63. Uh, I married a much younger woman. Um, and so, but a lot depends, as Randy said, on underlying health conditions. And I think that's what we're finding and are going to find with regard to the younger people who are, who are getting the disease and reacting very severely to it, is that in many cases, if not most of them, there are underlying conditions. And it's important, and you also have to ask yourself at a certain point how much risk you're willing to accept. Nobody should be imprudent, um, and so I think the older you are, the more you ought to try and isolate. That's what we're doing. And, and again, this all relates back to what uh, what Senator, uh, what, Senator uh, what Colonel Larson was saying about diagnostics, the more we in, reliable information we gather about the disease, the better the government can inform the public, so you can make good decisions about your own situation.
3: All right, and just a reminder for those listening: press star on your keypad at any time uh, to talk to one of our team members and get in the question queue. Our next question is from. Steve in St. Louis. Go ahead, Steve from St. Louis.
0: Uh, Good afternoon. I salute both of you for objective and coaching analyses. This question, I believe, is probably best answered by Colonel Larson. I believe that there was, in the fall of 2019, an international uh, preparedness simulation for a pandemic that Dr. Fauci, whom I have had the pleasure of meeting, um, I think he chaired it. I know
2: he was there. I'm thinking about that, and then the hurricane
0: simulation uh, immediately prior to Katrina in 2005, there was a hurricane simulation, Hurricane Pam. I don't think we learn very much from these simulations.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Well, it depends who you talk about learning, Steve. Uh, To a certain extent, I agree with you. We, uh, Senator Talent and I, and, and my colleagues going back for a couple of decades, have been trying to convince our national leaders, both in the legislative and uh, executive branches of government, Democrats and Republicans, that public health is a critical element of national security. I believe that since I was teaching this in 1999 at National War College. I don't think we've done a great job convincing a lot of people I think this pandemic is going to change that I was involved in two coronavirus pandemic exercises in less than two years May of 2018 the one that Senator Talent mentioned uh, was one that we did he played the Secretary of Defense in October of 2019 uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security along with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum did one in New York City called Event 201. And we specifically looked at the economic consequences of a coronavirus pandemic, which we're all seeing right now could be significant. Now, one of the things that we said in our lessons learned was you can't wait till the pandemic starts and then just throw a bunch of money at things and think you're going to fix it. These are things that we have to be prepared for well in advance, but it's it's national security it's like we don't know when we're going to have to use our nuclear powered aircraft carriers hopefully by having a bunch of them we can prevent wars but you can't wait till a conflict starts to then say oh we got to do something or of course actually we did that back you know in 1941 when all of a sudden there was pearl harbor and we realized we were not ready to go to a war that's kind of where we are today this is kind of a pearl harbor today I've been involved in 10 major exercises since 2001, looking at pandemic preparedness. Uh, I wish that some of the lessons learned would have resulted in some more action from the Congress and the various administrations.
3: All right. Our next question is from Kent in St. Louis. Kent, go ahead with your question.
2: Thank you. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Senator, Colonel,
3: the work that you've referenced that you've done together, how
2: much of that work is uh,
1: inform, informs the so-called
2: uh, NSC pandemic playbook? And can you talk a little bit about what that information is meant for and how, to, and how it's meant to be used by the administration? And also, did your work include any um, analysis of the potential economic effects of a pandemic? Thank you. You can start, Senator,
1: and then I have a few comments. Sure. Well, on, on the last point when you when we do these tabletop exercises, they definitely do take into account the economic damage caused by the pandemics. And I think it's a it's a mistake to think that is, as, as the government considers what to do, you have the economists in one corner and the public health people in the other, and they're throwing rocks at each other. Okay. So, you know, the economists understand that, that, uh, if that you need to fight the epidemic, they, they know a raging epidemic is not good for the economy and the public health people understand that saying to equity the economy is, uh, undermines public health, right? I mean, they all understand that, that these are interests and equities uh, that have to be balanced against each other. And they try and do that and come up with the right compromises. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, neither neither Colonel Larson nor I want to uh, communicate the idea that nothing has been done. I mean, there's a reason we have what I think is the best or certainly one of the best public health infrastructures in the world. It's because there's a constant ongoing effort and I think the officials, you know, for example, um, the, the government did create uh, a fund called BARDA. I think this was in 2002 or three that they created it, Colonel. You, you, you'd remember exactly that, um, which was designed to invest in medical countermeasures and stockpiling things we knew we would need and, and developing the capability to get other countermeasures more quickly. Okay, so it's really a question. I think they absorbed a lot of the lessons, but it's a question of prioritizing it. It's a question of, in government, urgent. the urgent tends to crowd out the important. It's another way of saying it is that officials tend to deal with the wolves closest to the sled, and this was a very, very big wolf that they didn't see as all that close to the sled. That's one of the reasons Bob Graham and I recommended 11 years ago that the vice president be put in charge of biosecurity to raise the visibility and urgency of it so i would say yeah i mean everybody all these administrations and congresses did some things and none of them did everything they could have done and as a result we have some capabilities but we don't have all the capabilities we needed and i'll just add this and something colonel larson taught me because this comes out of military thinking and planning so action is a result of intention and capability right well, you can change intention quickly. I mean, everybody in, in, around the country intends now uh, to prepare for pandemics and fight pandemics. The problem is capability takes longer to change, doesn't it? And what we're really doing, yeah. Randy, just yeah, he mentioned this. We're, we're buying back time with money now is what we're doing. And to some extent, we'll be able to. But it's going to cost well, a lot more than if we prepared in the first place. Before I answer uh, the
2: question there, uh, I want to make just one comment that provides a little bit of perspective, uh, Kent. On 9-11, county public health offices reported disease outbreaks to CDC in Atlanta via postcard. Most of them did not have fax machines. Virtually none of them had Internet connections. I mean... I can't imagine if this type of pandemic would have happened in 2001. So we have made huge strides in getting more funding to state and local public health offices. Now, you, but you see, as Senator Talent says, we get scared of something, whether it's SARS or H1N1 or Ebola. And they throw Congress throws some money at those state and county folks, and then it kind of goes off as we get. That's the way democracies work, okay? Like you said, we shoot the wolf closest to the sled or whatever. Now, as far as I know, there's really not a – that's Kent's question about it. Is there a checklist? The NSC really doesn't run those sorts of things, but believe me, there's all kinds of checklists at Health and Human Services, Department of Homeland Security, DOD, DOJ, CDC, and all of that. But I guarantee you, those have been activated. We talked a lot in, uh, particularly in our WND Center report card about the things that should have been done. And I am pleased to report that many of those have been done, including uh, things we recommended like the president declaring a national emergency, because that gives us so much flexibility to do things. The Stafford Act, which the president did a couple of weeks ago, instantly gives him access to $50 billion. Now, normally we see the Stafford Act comes after a hurricane or earthquake or something like that, but it can be used for things like this. We've declared a public health emergency, which gives the HHS secretary a lot of flexibility to move people around. The president's now talked about the Defense Production Act, which really gives him a lot of authority. Right now he says he's holding off a little bit because the private sector is stepping forward and saying, tell us what you need and we'll do it. And the one thing I haven't heard about is something that we had recommended is the national security exemptions, to the federal acquisition regulations. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with a contract with a federal government, but, I mean, you need six lawyers just to give you an idea of what you got to do. And giving some exemptions to that so that when the private sector jumps in in a crisis like this, there's not so much red tape that they got to
1: get through. Uh, Randy, just take to, a minute, to, Zach, just 30 seconds for Randy to talk. One of the reasons more was not done is how jurisdiction over this is spread throughout the federal government. So, Randy, just take a minute and yeah. explain this.
2: Yeah, the last study I did for the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security was called Jumpstart. <laughs> and we look at, like in a, in a case of a bioattack, which the response is very similar to what we'd be doing now, is how many federal government organizations and individuals would be involved and i'm talking about we counted presidentially appointed senate confirmed people now those are heavyweights in dc there's like 70 that are have some role in this response we're in right now in the various cabinets uh departments in 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 dc and none of them have it really for a full time job and no one's in charge so thankfully When President Trump put Vice President Pence in charge, which, like, say, Senator Graham and Senator Talent talked to Vice President Biden back in 2009 and recommended that, but they weren't just saying Vice President Biden should be, sorry. They said whoever is the vice president should lead this because they can tell cabinet secretaries what to do and they can talk on an equal level with governors.
3: All right, our next Mm -hmm. question is from Steve in Florida. Steve, go ahead.
2: Yes, sir, uh, Senator and Colonel Larson. Uh, A couple of nights ago, Dr. Fauci uh, addressed at the end of his presentation, he said that the uh, Southern
1: Hemisphere is now experiencing the second round of the coronavirus, and he anticipates that we will experience same. Aren't we looking at a second round of quarantine if this occurs?
2: Well, that's—I I heard him say that. There's, uh, you know, sometimes we see the flu get much easier once we get into the summer season here in the northern hemisphere. Uh, in the worst pandemic we ever had, 1918, 1919, it was kind of mild in the spring, but boy, when it came back in the fall, it was terrible which is why I believe Senator Townell already mentioned this is going to become endemic. It's going to be like polio. It's always going to be out there. However, for those who have it and 80, 85% of us that get it, will be fine. We will then be immune. And then hopefully within 18 months or so, we'll have a vaccine to protect ourselves, but it's going to be, we're very sure that it's going to be around in the environment for many years to come. So that's why the vaccine development is so important. And we've been able to control polio. I mean, polio will never go away because it can live in the human gut for a decade, but we've done a pretty good job of controlling polio. At one time we did a pretty good job controlling measles, but we have a problem with that. Now it's coming back. But as Bill Gates said, vaccines are the greatest invention of the human race and so that vaccine, we're going to need that to protect us in the future. Um, that's just a fact. All right.
3: Next question from Jeremiah in Chesterfield. Go ahead,
0: Jeremiah. Hey, uh, good afternoon. I want to thank um, Brenda and the Show Me Institute for hosting the call, and I want to thank uh, Colonel Larson and Senator Talent for being uh, making yourselves available for all of us. We appreciate it. Um, my wife and I have a uh, farm in in the middle of Missouri in a town called St. James, and we're not seeing we're not hearing about um, the coronavirus or COVID nineteen affecting smaller, dens- you know, population density communities in quite the same way. Uh, do, so the question is, do you expect that this will also get worse in small towns? And then, if so, what would be the um, the differences in how you would respond uh, in rural versus urban communities?
2: Well, Jeremiah, fascinating question. My wife and I were discussing that last night because we both come from farming families and I haven't heard much on the national news or even the local news what's going on in farms and ranches that, you know, it's not the density of population we're seeing in New York city or Los Angeles, but I think, Everyone is vulnerable since this is a novel virus. No one has natural immunity. It would probably take longer to get there. I guess the real advantage of being on a farm is you don't have to get up and go to town to go to work, which is really important because one of the most important things of getting through this is that we keep food on the shelves in our grocery stores. And I, I think you have a similar threat but because of the less dense population it's not as immediate but you should still be taking all of those same practices to protect yourself and your family
3: all right next sam in cole county go ahead sam in cole county Yes, uh, uh, thanks, Senator and Colonel Larson. Uh, just wanted, just curious to know um, your guys' reactions to uh, Missouri-specific um, the state leadership and their response to this and any actions the state should be taking or should not be taking.
0: And this is Brenda. I'm going to just insert that one of our uh, directors is on the line, too, Patrick Ishmael. So Colonel and, and Senator, uh, he can talk a little bit about some of the things we've been talking about after you all answer, answer that question.
2: Go ahead, Senator, because I yeah, have no
0: knowledge
1: I, of what's going on in Missouri. I think they're they're staying on top of it. Um, they're strongly, they've been very good in, in terms of communicating the importance of the core epidemiological responses to a pandemic. And again, you know, of course, we're focusing on the more severe set of restrictions that are designed to distance everybody from everybody else to some degree. Uh, that's the most severe set of restrictions. And that those are going to be, um, I think the governor was right and the state was right to leave that up in the first instance to localities because, as the last caller mentioned, the impact so far has been differently staged in different communities, which, by the way, is a cause for optimism because one of the ways to manage the need for surge capability is if, in effect, we don't have one, We do have one national epidemic in a sense. In another sense, we have a rolling, if you will, epidemic, which means to some extent you can shift capabilities around, right? Uh, So one community gets it under control, and they may have some capacity that others can then use. So I think they've been in the ballpark in terms of the right responses. I would just emphasize to everybody, I've tried not to be too critical um, of anybody any of these executive authorities on any level because once you get into the pandemic um, your options at that point can often be very limited which is one of the reasons that the colonel has emphasized for so long being prepared because it increases your options but i've been on balance pretty pleased with how we've handled it to this point and the longer we can one of the advantages of the restrictions to the extent we can flatten that curve is not only do we protect our, our health system capability, which is the primary goal, but we buy time, time for therapeutics to be developed, time for better diagnostic tests, time for gathering better information about the disease. And the more we can do that, the more options we'll have that are much more palatable to people. Okay? And again, the authorities, both the political authorities and the public health authorities, they're all aware of the, of the equities that are at stake, and they don't like sacrificing any of them. I mean, they really don't. I've been in the rooms with these people, not in this pandemic, although I've talked to some of them, but, you know, in discussing these things in the past. So what they're furiously trying to do is to, is to get us more options so they can make decisions that are easier for everybody to live with. But I think you know, I don't have a lot to gripe about. As I said, you want to criticize people, and, and Randy and I have both done it in this call, criticize people for what wasn't done before this rather than the difficult decisions they'd have, they've had to make once the pandemic hit.
4: And, and Hey, this is Patrick Ishmael. And I, and I just want to agree with Jim here. I, I think that, you know, the needs of St. James, Missouri uh, are going to be different than the needs of Kansas city, Missouri. Uh, and I think that this whole kind of idea of a rolling, you know, set of standards for different areas is a really important concept. I think for the, at least the beginning of this pandemic, Uh, A lot of folks have been fixated on kind of a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to shut down the country, have stay-at-home orders everywhere. And I think that, you know, I I, I do appreciate that uh, uh, policymakers are sort of stuck in a Gordian knot here. Uh, And there are two interest groups and two important groups of people that – uh, are, are impacted by this. Certainly, the first one is is the old and the infirm, the folks who are, are subject to the coronavirus who who might, you know, be be really hurt by it. But we also have this other group, and it's been talked about on this call already. And it's those that are young and poor uh, that these stay-at-home orders oftentimes can can really severely impact. You know, uh, and and even in some of these stay-at-home orders, depending on which part of the state you're in. They could be enforced you know, as kind of a soft stay-at-home order where uh, the police don't bother you or kind of a hard stay-at-home order where uh, the police are asking for you to report uh, businesses that are supposedly inessential that are operating. So, um, But I think that at the end of the day, I think you need to have flexibility. I think you need to make sure that the solutions that are being proposed strike a, the correct balance for the circumstances in the region that you're talking about. And I think if you do that, I think that you're going to be able to maximize the welfare of as many people as possible as we try to get our hands on you know, kind of a historic epidemic that uh, hopefully the, the next time, or hopefully this doesn't happen again, but hopefully the next time that it comes around we'll have a lot better experience and in, in policymaking ideas about how to deal with it better so that all of these interests, whether you're uh someone who is vulnerable to the illness or someone who is uh kind of being hurt by the response that everyone's interests are fully taken into account and i think the state of missouri has done all in all a, a pretty good job so far i do think though that there are things the state can do i mean we're talking about increasing the supply of
3: and just physicians quick, through license reciprocity
4: here. and and other okay. things too but i think by and large i think the state has done a pretty good job can i can i add one uh, quick thing yes,
3: I get to one more question uh, right before we wrap up. So just real quick, how do we manage uh, balancing the economy and public health?
1: Well, good. I can make the comment real quickly. Um, you have to leave room for both. And the public health authorities will tell you this. OK, one of the things they'll tell you is, is what they're not big quarantine fans. Again, I've been in these exercises and Randy will say this as well, because one of the dangers here is that if you, this isn't China, OK, we're not going to weld people into their homes. So if you, can, if you continue the restrictions too long and people become too dissatisfied, I'm not saying we should, we should end them. I, li- I like what's been happening right now, OK? But you can end up with the worst of both worlds. You can end up with the restrictions not being obeyed or, or disobeyed so much that, you, that they're not effective in slowing the spread of the disease. But the very presence of the restrictions continues to, to, to cause economic damage. And the public health authorities are very well aware of that. So the idea here is to move when the data justifies it and where the data justifies it and to balance all these equities, as Patrick was saying. That's what they're aiming at. They may not get it right all the time, but that's what they're trying to do. As
2: of an hour and a half ago, there were 520 confirmed cases in Missouri and nine deaths. You compare that to New York City, 39,140 confirmed cases and 461 deaths. Obviously, we got to be doing different things. I can see why a governor in Missouri would want to be doing something different than the governor in New York. And that's why I am a strong believer in the governors playing a big role in this. The federal government can provide guidelines, a lot of scientific data, but I think that uh, people, citizens, are going to feel more comfortable getting guidance from their governors and mayors.
0: Just quickly, thank you, Senator Talent. Thank you, Colonel Larson, for a very informative discussion. And thank you for all of you who have tuned in. Learn more about our work at showmeinstitute.org. And you can find our podcast at soundcloud backslash showmeinstitute. Please send us your email if we don't have it, if you're interested in receiving invitations to future events like this one. Thank you all, and stay safe.